0: Welcome to the Distrust and Disparities podcast, Voices from the Margins of Healthcare. On this podcast, we will explore both current and historical cases of medical injustices within the American healthcare system. We will get into how we can overcome this systemic mistreatment, advocate for ourselves, and close the gap on poor health outcomes and disparities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse And I am joined by my co-host and good friend, Camille White.
1: On this week's episode, we will discuss cervical cancer in Black women. We will cover Henrietta Lacks, a Black woman whose cells have made an enormous contribution to medicine and science. And we highlight the Black Women's Health Imperative, an organization working to protect and advance the health and wellness of Black
0: women and girls. Hi, Camille. How are you doing? Hey, Jasmine. I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I can't complain. I'm so excited. We had our launch week. We got so much support and encouragement. I appreciate everybody's feedback, the reviews, the comments, the texts that I received. It was really nice, really overwhelming. I was like really excited.
1: <laughs> yes. It was so nice to be able to share with like our friends and family. And like you said, the support that we've received from people on, you know, our social media pages and then also the, the text messages of support and feedback from people. It's been it's been really nice and we're so glad that it's been well received and we're so glad to continue on and release more episodes.
0: Yes. The work to get to the launch, you know, creating the social media, the graphics and just even recording and editing and learning the technology. So it felt really good. I was like, "Yes, we did it." It was like, "Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. Let's <laughs> we'll start working on the next. I was going to say, let's jump into the studio, but (laughs) 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 but we are excited to keep going. We're excited to bring you this episode. And, you know, we did a lot of work for this episode, you know, research and everything. So we're excited to put together this episode. Let's jump into this week's episode. I was excited to discuss Henrietta's story. She is one of the pivotal cases of distrust and disparities. And one of the main reasons I wanted to start this podcast, because I was even discussing with other colleagues, you know, Mm -hmm. nurses, and you know, I would be I would be shocked they didn't know Henrietta's story. I'm like, how do you not know about Henrietta Lacks and, you know, her contributions to medicine and also just the things surrounding her, like informed consent and Mm how her sales were taken, you know, without her knowledge and everything. So I was just shocked that more people don't know her story and just the amazing things she's contributed to medicine. I was like, we definitely have to cover Henrietta Lex. You know, she was, she is up there. She was like the number one story that I want to cover.
1: Yeah. And then even I remember not learning about her until maybe college when, right around the time, the book about her came out. But yeah, it is crazy that people in, you know, in the medical field, your own colleagues as nurses didn't know about her story when she's seen as like the mother of modern medicine. Without her HeLa cells, so much wouldn't have been accomplished. So the fact that people still don't recognize her, don't know who she is, it's insane. And that's one of the things that her family is working so hard to preserve is her legacy and educate future generations about what her cells have done and what they continue to do. They're still being used to this day.
0: Exactly. And this happens in Baltimore, Maryland. You would think in school they would teach us yeah. this and we would learn about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this would be like a priority in like science and biology class. Yeah. And it wasn't until like college that I learned about her story when I did the internship at Hopkins and then start, like you said, reading the book and then the movie came out. That's when it became more public knowledge. And that's when we learned, but it's like growing up in Baltimore at Hopkins, we should have been taught this.
1: Yeah. Not a peep about it where is this is a situation where like, Henrietta should have a statue. Like if not a few, she should at least have one where that should have been a part of essential curriculum where you learn about her, you know, maybe early on in like elementary school, but then maybe when you can understand a little bit better, like having a little project about her, In middle school or high school, it was, she was never discussed. She was never talked about and the role she's played in medicine and science, um, is so significant that to not talk about her is just ridiculous.
0: Yep. And just last year, 2020, the family put on a huge celebration and symposium for her hundredth birthday,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, they called it HeLa 100. So, they put on like a big celebration. They really wanted to honor her legacy.
1: So, they wanted to honor her legacy and make sure that people continue to talk about her and acknowledge her because I think at least people in the medical field, they know about HeLa cells if you're in research right. and you're doing stuff like you know HeLa cells, but do you know about Henrietta Lacks? Do you know maybe anything about her family. Yeah. Yes. People are ignorant to a lot of that. And I think it's definitely a problem too, that no one's maybe taking the time to truly understand because there have been plenty of the people that later on, because when her cells were taken when was 1951, they've later on donated their own cells and other people have contributed. But like, her contribution is on like an astronomical scale of like so much greater than everyone else and she deserves recognition. Herself and her contribution were able to do so much for like the world at large. Exactly.
0: So I'm excited that today we get to honor Henrietta's legacy and also break down some of the distrust and the disparities in her story. Let's jump into her story. Let's get to know Henrietta the person and also her family. Henrietta Lex was a Black woman born on August 1st, 1920 in Roanoke, Virginia to parents Eliza and Johnny Pleasant. Her original name was Loretta Pleasant. Researchers, even her family, are unsure of when she changed her name to Henrietta. When Henrietta was four, her mother passed away and she was sent to live with her grandfather. Tommy Lacks on a tobacco farm in Clover, Virginia. In 1941, she married David Lacks, who was her first cousin. She had her first child at 14 years old. Oh, okay. Just around that, they don't really talk too much about it. But when um, her mother died when she was young, she went to, like I said, live with her grandfather. Mm-hmm. And her and Dave, they grew up together. They point out that they shared like the same room growing up. And they had their first child at 14 years old. And then they eventually got married when she was 20. So interesting facts, but Uh-oh. oh, okay, <laughs> that's not the most interesting thing you'll learn in this episode. <laughs> so eventually the young couple, they moved to from uh, Clover, Virginia to Baltimore for more opportunities. They moved to Turner station in Dundalk, Maryland and you know, being from Baltimore um, and having family growing up, a lot of people, they worked at Bethlehem Steel. That was like a big steel company. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were moving from rural areas to the urban cities like Baltimore for work in these big, like large factories and everything.
1: I mean, that's what my grandparents did.
0: The couple had five children together. Lawrence, Elsie, David, Deborah, and Zachary. Um His original name was Joseph, but he changed it. So Henrietta is not much known about Henrietta, but um, the details that I got from like the book and just like interviews that her family have given about Henrietta because she died so young. So Henrietta family, they described her as being full of life. She was really beautiful, had a really bright smile and just very caring. One quote that I found Said she loved to dance and was fashionably stylish and enjoyed her favorite color red. They described how she would paint her toenails red, her fingernails red. And also they described that she was just very loving towards her family and also just like the extended family, just moving from the rural area. To mm-hmm. Baltimore, you know, she would take in, you know, large extended family, was pointing out, even if they weren't family, you know, if they needed like a hot meal or like a place to stay, she would take them and was very warm and welcoming. That's what I got from the information that I was pulling about her. I know just looking at the images that I s- have seen of Henrietta Lex, especially the picture. Uh, that's the cover of the book um, where she has her hands on the hips. She's looking into the camera. She looks very confident, very beautiful. Just the pictures that you see. She's a very pretty black woman. In 1951, Henrietta, she went to John Hopkins hospital complaining of heavy vaginal bleed on Hopkins website. You know, they note that John Hopkins hospital was one of the only few hospitals that treated poor African-Americans. So I thought that was interesting that they pointed out, like, we're taking care of Black people. Look at us.
1: Yeah. It's sort of like, oh, give us a star, pat us on the back. And I think I also saw somewhere on their website that apparently Johns Hopkins, he specifically stated in like his will or something that he wanted to make sure that the hospital did treat African-Americans.
0: So many Black people in Baltimore don't trust Hopkins and we'll mm-hmm. get into more of that distrust Cause it's deeply noted in the family, how they don't trust Hopkins. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, they wanted to point out that they were, you know, treating us colored folks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> look, look at, look at us in the
1: medical world. We're treating them colors that live right outside the the Hopkins campus. Yep.
0: Right. were they getting the same treatment as other people mm-hmm. in these, Separate colored wards. Mm.
1: Hmm. Yeah,
0: because yeah, yeah.
1: Like, interesting. There was right. there was segregation. It's like, oh, you're treating us, but there's segregation, and we all know how segregation works. Right, and
0: definitely, we'll dedicate a whole episode to like hospitals and like these separate medical wards and just the difference in treatments and everything. But anyway, Hopkins did see her, so she was seen by Doctor Howard Jones. So he found a large malignant tumor on her cervix. So she had surgery to remove the tumor. And during that surgery, they took two biopsy samples of her tumor without her knowledge or consent. So I'm
1: guessing so, yeah, she's probably thinking, OK, they're removing it. But there was nothing discussed of like, oh, we're removing it and we're going to be testing things now and looking at stuff. She just thought they're going to take out what is this cancer and, you know, hopefully save my life and probably just like throw it away, not like keep it somewhere. Right.
0: She thought she was going to have surgery, remove the tumor and also just treat her for this very aggressive form of cervical cancer. So Mm -hmm. she also, in addition to the surgery at that time, she was receiving um, radium treatments. Mm. So that was like, and that's really aggressive, harsh form of treatment Mm -hmm. for cancer. So despite having the surgery and also the radium treatments, um, her cancer quickly spread throughout her whole body. And on October 4th, 1951, which was eight months after her diagnosis, Henrietta passed away in the colored ward of John Hopkins. Um, She was buried in an unmarked grave.
1: Okay. And I remember, at least from watching the movie, it seemed to be an unmarked grave on um, land that the family owned in, what, Clover, Virginia. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So despite her passing, her cells still remained resilient. That second sample of her cells was sent to Dr. George Guy's lab for analysts. And he had been studying... um, cells and he was receiving everybody that came to Hopkins with cervical cancer he would they would automatically send him sample of the biopsy that they took of their cells so okay. nobody was consented including Henrietta they just took the cells they and passed it on to Dr Guy at this mm-hmm. time so he was a prominent cancer and virus researcher Most of the samples that he collected, they didn't last very long outside the body. However, Henrietta's cells were very unique, and the opposite occurred. So when he was studying her cells, instead of like dying, her cells, every 20 to 24 hours, they doubled. And this was a huge discovery. Because like I said, most of the cells, they didn't last really long. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and to point out, they were the first human cells to survive outside of the body in a test tube. They lasted longer longer than 36 hours. So that was huge. That was like a remarkable discovery like this has never happened before.
1: Yeah. Cuz mm-hmm. that's, so, that's a big deal where they just keep growing that it that it never happened. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and he was like these cells are immortal. That's where this term came out because they kept multiplying indefinitely. So Mm -hmm. Dr. Guy, he isolated and multiplied a specific cell strand. So he created what was called the Hela cell line. So um, the term Hela, H-E-L-A, that comes from the first two letters of her first and last name. So he, Dr. Guy, he was astonished by this discovery. So he's telling all his colleagues, medical professionals, just of the breakthrough that he made. And um they say, like, looking at stories and, like, interviews, he was, like, just giving the samples away. Like, this is amazing. Like, these were the first living cells that they could ship by mail. So he's, like, shipping it to people, sending them out, like look what I discovered. These cells are still living and they're mm-hmm. multiplying. Like, look at this. He's like sending them out. Henrietta cells became the cornerstone of modern medicine and they continue to have a global impact to this day. So we are just going to talk about all the amazing and wonderful things that Henrietta cells, a black woman's cells, have done and contributed to medicine. So, we're about to shout it out right now.
1: So, let's see. Over 50 million metric tons of HeLa cells have been distributed around the world to become the subject of more than 75,000
0: studies. Oh, um, before you go on, like, this is like the most famous and the oldest cell line in history.
1: Oh, yes. This is, yeah, the most famous. Yeah, human cell line.
0: One of the the first things
1: that her cells were used were for the development of the polio vaccine in
0: 1953. And that's amazing because I think in 1952, that's when they had like a big polio outbreak and Mm -hmm. people were dying of polio. So for her cells to be used in the development of the polio vaccine, this is huge. Like we're still given this vaccine to this day. And, um, you know, polio has been eradicated because yeah. of this like we're yeah. not suffering from polio mm-hmm.
1: they sent her cells to space which then helped contribute to research and understanding the effects of zero gravity on human cells again like uh, an accomplishment they would have never been able to do without
0: hela cells right um, like we're talking about like jeff bezos and elon musk going to space they wouldn't have been able to do that without henrietta cells Nobody yeah. would have been going to space without her cells.
1: Yeah. Cause then it's, cause astronauts like, you know, you're sort of putting your life on the line to go and explore something new, but they were initially able to see, okay, how would that truly affect human cells before then having, um, people go up and do it. Also, her cells were used for the development of drug treatments, um, for the effects of cancer, for drugs for HIV and AIDS, hemophilia, leukemia, and even Parkinson's disease. So again, her cells were being used in research and studies to truly help people and understand, you know, if you have HIV or AIDS, like let's test out the different treatments that people are coming up with to see what can help people. Even then her cells were the first human cells that were ever able to be cloned.
0: That's amazing.
1: It, it's just so many different things again, like what understanding the effects of radiation on cells. And then we're getting into, then they started doing gene mapping and chromosomal conditions and researching that on her cells. And she, her cells even helped with um, fertilization and infertility because it was breakthroughs in reproductive health. So you have in vitro fertilization and then the HPV vaccine. And so HPV, of course, is one of the causes of cervical cancer, which Henrietta died of.
0: Yeah, I think it's amazing just as far as like in vitro fertilization Mm -hmm. and that science and just, you know, being able to, you know, create another life. So I always think that is amazing. And then just with the development of like the HPV vaccine, which is like causes cervical cancer, Mm -hmm. you know, doing research on, you know, what. She died of the cervical cancer. So just being able to, you know, her cells have done such amazing things and helped so many people. Even though she died so young at thirty-one years old, but. Her cells have contributed to so many medicines, research that are helping people to live and thrive this day. Even with, like we said, the big one, the polio vaccine, like Mm -hmm. we would have still been um, dying of polio had it not been for her cells and the development of the vaccine.
1: Yeah, it's her. cell. Unfortunately, she died and her cells continue to live on and have literally either, you know, helped save people's lives or sustain their lives with any sort of treatment they would need depending on their disease or um, illness that they had. Or then on top of that, with an in vitro fertilization, she has helped create lives. So Mm
0: -hmm. she's
1: continued to do so much for so many people, even though she's no longer here.
0: Mm -hmm. And even to this day, um, her cells have been used in the development of the COVID-19 vaccine. So we're still using her cells. And like I said, there are over 17,000 US patents that involve HeLa cells. So we will continue to use her cells and they will continue to be um, used for medical advancement, for science and so many ways that we don't even know yet.
1: Yeah. And then I saw that, like you even pointed out too, that it's easier to pinpoint where her cells have not been used for research than it is Mm -hmm. to point out, you know, how like all the different research cases and studies that have used her cells. So that's, Mm -hmm. they're just, they're worldwide and will continue to, to, to be that way indefinitely.
0: Yep. Like we said, Henrietta cells, they were a game changer and they have revolutionized modern medicine. So, we list all the things that her cells have done and have contributed to. So, you would think that Henrietta would be recognized and honored for all the amazing work that her cells have contributed to, but... According to one of Dr. Guy's colleagues, Dr. Guy, he created a new name for Henrietta Lacks so that the media wouldn't discover who she really was. So he used the name Helen Lane. So in medical and science journals, the name Helen Lane was used when they talked about Gila cells because they didn't want the media and the public to know who she really was. And it wasn't until 1971 When um, Dr. Guy died and they did a tribute for him that they identified Henrietta Lacks as the source of the HeLa cells. That was like the first time in print that they recognized Henrietta Lacks as the source of the cells. So before then, they were using like the term Helen Lane as the cells. Mm -hmm. So the world found out about her cells, but her family still didn't know And this is in 1971. So we're talking
1: yeah, 20 years later and her family still has no idea about anything at all. They were never notified, you know, originally when it's just like, oh, my goodness, her cells have continued to multiply outside of the body. And, you know, they've buried her and and said goodbye and grieved her death. And still 20 years later, her cells are around and doing so many different things. And yeah. they've never they've never been informed, which is crazy where you would think I could understand in, in terms of maybe trying to preserve privacy for them. So media isn't coming to sort of hound them for interviews and ask them a bunch of questions, but they should have at least been informed. They should have at least known, hey, this is what your mother's cells are doing, I feel like they could have taken, you know, they would have had pride and had that opportunity to be, you know, in some way proud of, well, she's not here, but her cells have already done so much because in that 20 years, what in 1953, we said the polio vaccine came out. So, so many mm-hmm. things had already happened and they could have had the opportunity to, you know, look fondly on, you know, the legacy that it already started since 1951.
0: Yeah, you bring up a good point. Like, I understand back then they didn't have to get consent to take her cells. But once you realize, like, oh, her cells are amazing and they're doing wonderful things and helping people, why couldn't you reach out to the family? You knew her real identity. Why can not you look into contacting the family and, like, letting them know, like, oh, your mom's cells or your wife's cells are doing amazing things. This is Mm -hmm. what we've discovered and this was what we... Are using them for. I just don't get how they were left out in the dark for 20 years. And even the way that they found out about her cells, you know, they weren't directly told, you know, Mm-mm. they kind of had to learn for themselves. So in 1973, HeLa cells, they contaminated other cell lines. HeLa cells were not only dependable, but aggressive.
1: I remember learning about how they would just travel through the air vents and things mm-hmm. of laboratories. So you had these great cells that could do so much, but they, they multiplied and they were sort of just like taking over other cells. And that was literally the only reason why they ended up reaching out to the Lax family because the researchers needed to sort
0: out which cells Uh, Which one were other cells?
1: Yeah. And so again, it's like, okay, so you only wanted to reach out to them because you wanted something from them. I'm Mm. wondering, and I think like the family has always thought that too, of like, if that never happened, would Hopkins have ever said anything?
0: Right. If the cells didn't become like contaminated or anything, you're Mm -hmm. right. Would they have said anything or would they have been business as usual? We never would have found out Mm -hmm. about her cells and the woman's story. Yeah. Because then it's
1: also like, I know they say that in a tribute to Dr. Guy that they released you know, her identity in 1971. But where was that, you know, released? Was that put in like, you know, the Baltimore Sun? Or was that sort of put out there in medical journals and research journals where the family isn't reading any of that? They don't have access to any of that. So where would they have heard this story? It wasn't like, you know, you could turn on the five o'clock news and, and, and see it all of a sudden everyone was talking about it. It seems as though- Right. You know, people were told, but people in the medical and scientific community were told.
0: Yeah, they were the only ones. So in 1973, researchers from Hopkins, they came to the family to take blood. So they reached out to her husband to get blood. And, you know, he told the rest of the family, you know, Hopkins is coming to take blood. And, you know, they thought they were being tested for cancer to see if they were at risk for getting the same cancer that their mom had or just any form of cancer. That's what they were under impression. Like, oh, they're taking blood. To, you know, just see if we have a chance of developing cancer and dying. So Mm -hmm. that's why they agreed to get the blood. And uh, like we were discussing before, patient consent, I think they didn't start talking about patient consent until maybe like the 1960s. But even with patient consent, you have to explain to people to their understanding what they're consenting to. The family didn't understand what they were consenting to because the researchers, you know, they took their blood and they also used it for additional medical research down the line. So, yes, you're consenting people if you are, but you're not explaining to them what exactly their specimens are going to be used for.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they had to sign some sort of document and you know, in terms of like any sort of consent form, a lot of times it's not broken down into something that's easily understood. It it has a lot of legal jargon in there that your everyday person doesn't understand. Literally, you have to have like a law degree to understand some of like the sentences and phrases and different things. And they didn't take the time to make sure, okay, one, we're doing this because HeLa cells. Because I think when you're contacting them and asking them for blood, they mm-hmm. clearly would have not even understood the whole Healer cells and her identity was revealed two years prior. So you then should have taken the time to be like, oh, y'all have no idea. Well, this is what happened. This is what's going on. And, you know, her cells contaminated other cells that we were doing research and test on. So we need to use your blood to sort of parse out which are her cells and, you know, which are the other cells. And that didn't happen.
0: Yeah. And like, I was saying they didn't understand. They didn't know the significance of the HeLa cells. They didn't Mm -hmm. know that her mom's cells were still alive and being grown and still being used to this day. They did not understand. And um, in the book and also from interviews, it wasn't until a rolling stone, they did a piece on Henrietta's cells and they interviewed the family. That's when they really discovered that her cells were still alive and that they were still being used. And so once the family found out that her cells were still being used, it just brought up so many issues. It just became such this big, complex case. And just a few of, like, a few things. So one of the things that was in debate was, you know, her cells were taken without her consent. But they were saying this happened in 1951, so they there was no such thing as patient consent.
1: Yeah, so. technically, Johns Hopkins didn't do anything illegal. There there wasn't any, maybe there might've been like early, early discussions, and but there was nothing concrete in place of you need a patient's consent before you start taking things and sending it off and doing tests of anything. Mm-hmm. So technically they didn't do anything illegal,
0: but I think maybe morally most people can look at it and go, but you still should have told the family. Right. Like technically, you know, what you were saying, you didn't have to have consent, but- What about telling the family that you took the cells and that they're doing these amazing things? And Mm -hmm. Hopkins, they put out a statement and part of their statement, they said, it's important to note that at the time, at the time the cells were taken from Mrs. Lack's tissue, the practice of obtaining informed consent from cell or tissue donors was essentially unknown among academic medical centers. It said, 60 years ago, there was no established practice of seeking permission to take tissue for scientific research purposes. The laboratory that received mislaced cells had arranged many years earlier to obtain such cells from any patient diagnosed with cervical cancer as a way to learn more about the serious disease that took so many lives. So Hopkins was like, you know, we didn't have to get informed consent at that time. You know, we just took everybody's cells. We mm-hmm. wasn't telling nobody that we was taking their cells and testing them in the lab.
1: Yeah. And it's it, it's like, okay, yes, understand. But that's an excuse because, you know, everybody else's cells you took. And then it was like, oh, there's not much we can do with this. And they were, they were discarded where this is an exceptional case and her cells have led to so much, that's when I think anyone, especially people who are doctors and researchers, can rub together a few of their brain cells and go, mm, maybe we should tell the family about this. This is something that they would probably enjoy knowing that their beloved family member is no longer here with them, but her cells are now contributing to helping so many other people that are here. I don't... It's it's a simple thing of like, oh, well, you know, we didn't have to do it, so we didn't do it. And it's more about, well, like, did you ever apologize to them? Did you ever acknowledge mm-hmm. that the way you handled things wasn't correct? And it's just because, well, just because it wasn't, you know, a mandated thing that you have patient consent doesn't mean that like you shouldn't of in some way communicated with the family and let them know what was going
0: on. And like you were saying, the families, they have a huge distrust of Hopkins Mm -hmm. already. And they're like, you took our mom's cells and you know, you didn't tell us that you were using them. That's a big thing. For 20 years, they didn't know that their mom cells were still being used. And, you know, nobody from Hopkins came to tell them they came and drew blood and still didn't tell them. So that would create like a huge distrust of this large medical facility, even though they were saying at this time, we didn't consent anybody, but you knew her cells were doing amazing things. They were being used for research. You knew her correct identity and you chose not to tell her family. So Mm -hmm. I can understand why the family is mad at them. And they're like, oh no, you did nothing wrong. But it's like, you could have done something. You could have let her family know. They didn't have to be in the dark for over 20 years with this going on.
1: And then have, you know, a reporter come to them from a magazine and go like, oh, did you know about, you know, Henrietta Sells? And they're just like, what in the world are you talking about? Cause then you're sitting there looking crazy and stupid, of like, what? I, what are you talking about? We have no idea what what any of this is. And then then they're probably thinking back, oh, Johns Hopkins, they they took our blood not that long ago. Is this has something to do with all of that? And yeah, that immediately you're just like, you can't trust anyone from Johns Hopkins. You can't trust them at all because they're not in any way looking out for you, or they're not being open and honest about what's happening. They just want to use you. And and then go, okay, bye. Like, maybe we'll see you later for more blood tests. But, you know, that's it. Mm-hmm.
0: And then another issue that it brings up is ownership of your cells in one's body. So who owns Henrietta cells? You know, mm-hmm. how can you, her family can't, like, take back ownership. Because, like you said, there is over, would you say, 50 billion tons of cells out here. They can't just, like. Give us these cells back. We take it back because it's already been out there and, you know, mass produced. So when the family was, you know, trying to figure out how they can exert some kind of control over the cells, it's like they can't own the cells. And then they were reaching out to lawyers. They can't really sue Hopkins because they were saying the statute of limitation for medical malpractice has expired. And also, like we said, they weren't consenting anybody when they were taking people's cells. Mm And then. Um, one lawyer they put up like a direct quote, they said, the question of who owns the cells is complicated. I think the answer is no one legally owns the cells as one whole entity um, because they can be purchased. So even like the family wasn't even consulted on any medical decisions stemming from the use of the cells in research.
1: And like the biggest problem was that eventually, even though what Dr. Guy and Johns Hopkins, they were sort of getting her cells away, vials away, because it was this this great discovery and everyone should be able to use these cells. Oh my goodness. But then eventually people started to sell them. And that's Mm -hmm. when like the huge issue and debate of like, well, not only did you not give recognition to her or even communicate to her family what was going on, but then people started profiting off of her Mm -hmm. cells in a way in terms of money. I think originally maybe Dr. Guy and Hopkins sort of saw it as like, everyone should have use of her cells. This is so awesome. But then people started making money and, mm-hmm. you know, her family wasn't making money. Her family wasn't making anything. And without Henrietta, they wouldn't have all this. So there needs to be acknowledgement and also compensation of If you're going to start selling the cells now all of a sudden, because you see it as like you're sort of taking ownership in a way of it now that you start selling them off to people. So then why wouldn't the family be entitled to some of that money?
0: Exactly. And I think it was like around 1952, 1953, like it was strictly being produced so that researchers could use it to research other things and make discoveries. But then, you know, people are going to try to start making a profit And that's when they start selling the cells. So Mm -hmm. her cells, they eventually built a, to this day, it's a multi-billion dollar industry from selling human materials. And HeLa cells make up a large percentage of that. So HeLa cells are what sparked this biotechnology industry to start selling these cells. And what's crazy To this day, her families have not received any direct profits from the sale of her cells.
1: Yeah. Which is, it's crazy because it is multi-billions. We're not talking about like little pennies here. And the fact that it's a whole industry that literally probably wouldn't, it may exist, but it may not exist to the extent that it does today. They should be compensated. They, they should be getting like, if people are making money off of it, a percentage of that check needs to be sent directly to the family. And especially when, when she did pass, like her family didn't have much money and that could have been life-changing for them. That could have helped them in so many ways. And Mm -hmm. instead it went into the hands of people that were profiting off of a woman who they didn't even, I don't think took the time or care to learn about.
0: Yeah, exactly. I just don't get how her family is not receiving any money, any royalties. It's like once they discover it, like her family is still alive, like something should have been implemented in place to give them money. Every time her cells are sold, um, mm-hmm. every time like a drug that uses healer cells, she should be getting some type of royalties, money going directly to the family. Like this is crazy. Like to this day, you know, they have not received any direct compensation yeah for ourselves.
1: And, and pharmaceutical companies <laughs> they make so much money and right. they charge people so much money, like a ridiculous mm-hmm. amount of money that doesn't even it, it more than covers like the cost of making that treatment and the and the studies and things and research that goes into it. And you're charging, you know, a hundred times what it actually is worth. So yeah. Y'all have the money. Y'all have plenty of it. Mm-hmm. And only certain people like the CEOs and executive people at those companies are the ones who are running around with billions of dollars while her family, you know, later on, after learning everything, they started doing um, speeches and traveling around to to talk about her. And that was like, maybe they get a little um, speech fee, but that is literally nothing. It's breadcrumbs compared to what all these different organizations and companies were making off of HeLa cells. And that's just for the sale of them. So they're not only selling them, but then they're using them, creating a product with research on them. And then from that product are making even more money. And none of it went to the family.
0: Yeah. Like articles in the book and the movie, they point out her family is struggling to have pay for their own medical expenses their medical bills struggling some don't even have health insurance and Mm -hmm. while her cells are being used to develop the drugs that they can't even afford to use they don't have access to the science the technology that her cells have been used to develop this is just a huge disparity how is this possible that they have not received any money Mm -hmm. from the sale of her cells and they have not received financial compensation but Later on, she does, Henrietta's story starts to get recognition.
1: We are going to pause at this point in Henrietta Lacks' story. And in part two, we will highlight how Henrietta has been recognized and the Lacks family struggle to have a say in the use of her cells and how they are trying to maintain her legacy. Now we want to focus on the disparity that remains in the diagnosis of and death from cervical cancer, especially in Black women. Henrietta's life was cut short due to cervical cancer. As we mentioned before, HeLa cells have contributed to medical breakthroughs in cervical cancer research, including the development of the human virus or HPV, vaccine. Black women are two times more likely to die from cervical cancer compared to white women, Cervical cancer is preventable, and we want to highlight the Black Women's Health Imperative, a nonprofit organization working to protect and advance the health and wellness of Black women and girls.
0: This past June, the Black Women's Health Imperative and Hologix Project Health Equality launched the Serving Confidence a collaboration featuring singer and songwriter Sierra that encourages Black women to commit to their Well Woman exams as a part of self-care and protecting themselves against cervical cancer. The Serving Confidence offers life-saving information and screening access to help prevent cervical cancer in Black women who are disproportionately impacted by it. I just want to touch on a little bit of how cervical cancer is screened for and detected. Cervical cancer occurs in the cells of the cervix, which connects the vagina, the birth canal, to the upper part of the uterus. Routine screening with a pap smear test alone, is recommended for women ages 21 to 29. For women ages 30 to 65, certain studies show that screening with a pap test in combination with an HPV test is the best way to detect the disease. The pap test identifies any abnormal cervical cells, while the HPV test detects the presence of human papilloma virus. About 8 out of 10 women will contract HPV at some time in their lives. Most of the time, the HPV will go away on its own. However, sometimes it stays and it develops into cervical cancer. When detected early, cervical cancer and pre-cancer are highly treatable and Black women's lives can be saved. This information and more facts and statistics and also where you can get more resources and help can be found on the Serving Confidence and the Black Women's Health Imperative website. You can find the link to that in our show notes. And also, it's important to point out that COVID-19 may have widened the disparity gap when it comes to cervical cancer detection because of delays in screening. So that means less women are being treated and diagnosed. So. Double check that you've had your pap smear done this year. If not, call your OBGYN doctor or visit the closest reproductive health clinic to get one done as soon as possible. Also, ask your close friends and loved ones when's the last time they had a pap smear. Let's continue the conversation and take the first steps to advocate for ourselves.
1: This is part one of our cervical cancer and Henrietta Lacks discussion. Please tune in to our next episode for part two. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a medical story we should discuss on the podcast or even your own personal story of medical distrust or disparities, or just want to shout out an amazing organization working to improve the health outcomes of marginalized communities, please email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow, rate, and review the Distrust and Disparities podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.